Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with today's guest who's lived with type 1 diabetes longer than I have, Tim White. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for stopping by. My name is Amber Kluwer and I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease and is the very reason I created the Diabetes Daily Grind and host this, the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. It's rare that I meet someone like Tim who's lived with type 1 diabetes longer than I have. And that's a long time. (laughs) The fact that his grandfather smelled his breath to confirm his T1D diagnosis is a quick reminder how far we've come. But before we get started, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, this episode was brought to you by my friends at Real Good Foods. Right now, I'm totally digging the grande chicken enchiladas. Not only are they delicious, but they're also gluten and grain-free because the tortilla is made with chicken instead of processed flour. Winning and I mean winning, on so many diabetes levels, at least in my world. Real Good Foods is now a part of my affiliate page, so pop over to diabetesdailygrind.com to do a little shopping amongst other reputable brands that are making my life with this disease an easier one. Number two, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click on the donate link in the show notes. And finally, stay engaged. Love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter. Leave an iTunes review. Subscribe to the DDG YouTube channel. That's so hard to say. And click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. It doesn't cost you a thing and throws a little change my way. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast, Tim. Uh, Tell me where you're calling in from. Calling in from El Dorado Hills, California. It's a community of about 50,000 people. We're about 25 miles east of Sacramento and about 50 miles west of Lake Tahoe. So we're sort of right in the middle off Highway 50. So I'm sure it's beautiful there, with the exception of you guys are in the middle of a, they're calling it, and it's not a heat wave, it's like a hot pocket. It's hot, whatever they call it. Today it's going to be 102, and that's not unusual. We get a few days like that each year, but the next two days are predicting 109, 111. So that is hot. And then, you know, to the extent possible, you get up early, do whatever you have to do outside before it gets too hot, and then you try to stay inside and enjoy the shade and the air conditioning. Right. Well, and you know, I I read all the time about the effects that temperature has on diabetes and the extra precautions we have to take, whether that's being, well, not being too cold, but our insulin and things like that being too cold or too hot. So do you feel like with this heat wave, do you, I mean, you've had diabetes for a really long time, and we'll get into that here in a second. So it's probably like second nature, you don't think about it. But when you really think about temperatures like that, Is there anything else that you're doing with your diabetes management that could be different? Um, Just watching it. Obviously, you know, you go outside, even you go out at eight in the morning and it's already 88 degrees, it's hot. And, you know, what I might do normally and not worry about it, you know, I'm sweating more than usual. You put on the sunscreen and the the hat and all that. But even so, it's you can quickly get dehydrated. You can quickly get certain signs of heat stroke. So, you know, you go yeah. out quickly, you do what you have to do. Like you said, I've been a diabetic for a long time, so it's somewhat second nature, but I'm certainly always alert as to, to the warnings. Yeah. And, you know, with an insulin pump, I get, you know, warnings if I'm going low and stuff like that. So I'm very aware of where where I am uh, in the presence and what it, and how it affects my diabetes. Okay. So I want to start to listeners because I'm always, and I don't know how to word this without it, hopefully not sounding... Um, Oh, what's the word? Offensive, maybe. <laughs> but when parents meet me and know that I've had type 1 diabetes for 38 years or whatever years, 
and they've got a child that's newly diagnosed. It's like seeing somebody, it's like you're a superhero because you've lived this long, you, you look healthy and things like that. So it's always nice for me to meet someone who's had type one diabetes longer than I have. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your diagnosis story and maybe the year and stuff like that. So everybody has an understanding about how far things have come. Okay. Well, my diabetes started, start, story started in 1966. I was 13 years old. I'm 68 years old now. So I've had type one diabetes for 55 years. I think probably like uh, many teenagers, when you get it, you know, I don't think there was much as, as much awareness of diabetes 50 years ago, 55 years ago, as there is today. Sure. You know, you're as a teenager, you're, you're eating a lot, you're drinking a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I was, you know, all the classic signs, I was losing weight, but I was also shooting up two inches in, you know, yeah. uh, two months. So that didn't strike anything, urinating a lot and getting tired. One day I was heading off to walking off to school and I walked up the block and then I turned around and came back and said, mom, I'm just too tired to go. So what do moms do? They put you to bed. Right. Uh, my mom called my grandfather, who was a retired uh, surgeon, and uh, he came over and uh, he smelt my breath. You know, that was sort of the old fashioned way of telling if something may have gone wrong. And he said, no, I think we need to get to him to the hospital. So took me to the hospital. Turned out I had a blood sugar in excess of 750. Wow. Uh, they put me in intensive care for the night. You know, you're 13 years old. You were told you have diabetes, which you don't know, haven't even yeah. heard about anything about it. They've got fluids going into you. There's a bunch of much older people who seem to yeah. be in a lot worse condition. And it was sort of scary, but, you know, got through it. And so I've been living with it uh, ever since. Okay. So when you were diagnosed, and I'm always fascinated by this, like I spent almost two weeks in um, children's hospital. I was not in DKA. Like you were saying, you were in the intensive care unit for a night. Did you stay a week? And how did you learn how to manage your diabetes? I stayed uh, one week. You know, the first thing they tell you is you're going to have to give yourself shots. And, you know, they told my parents to show them how to do it. And my dad said, no, show him how to make sure he's the one who's going to have to do it. Yeah. So right off the bat, my parents made sure I was independent enough. So I was old enough to give the shots. Now, I think for a lot of young people, you know, early diagnosed when they're in their ages two to eight or 10, that may be difficult to do. But as soon as you have the independence to give your own shots and start managing some parts of your diabetes, I think it's important that children do that as soon as they're capable of and as soon as their parents are comfortable enough that the child can do that. I totally um, agree. Yeah. I mean, I think the right is at age eight, so I get it. Well, in your life, I mean, think about this. I'm saying this to the listeners. 55 years ago, giving a shot was very different. You had to, what, boil stuff, the needle, or? Actually, I just avoided that. When I was diagnosed uh, with just about a year before, the BD finally came out with oh. uh, disposable syringes. <laughs> but for diabetics before that, yes, you had to use the same needle. You had to boil the needle. You had to sharpen the needle. Oh. Uh, now we have, you know, disposable needles. We have insulin pumps. The technology is just so much further along uh, and it's so much easier. But yeah, you know, uh, I was never, well, let's just say I didn't, I never liked, particularly liked shots. And then you finally find out you're going to have to give yourself a shot a day. And then, of course, over the years, uh, I went from one shot to two shots, yeah. then to three shots, and then finally four shots. And then finally, I went to an insulin pump. So yeah. that sort of reduced the uh, punctures to the legs, stomach, yeah. and all the rest. Okay. And the last question about your original diagnosis, what type of insulin were you put on? Was it like beef or I don't even know. Cause it was, animal. it was pork. It was a, a combination, I think of pork and beef. Yes. 
Yes. And there, there was always concerns that if enough pork and beef weren't going through the processing plants to, to get the pancreas out, that you'd run out of insulin. I mean, I'm not sure how great a concern it was, but it was something of an awareness. Obviously, when they develop things like Humalog and Novolog, yeah. that s- synthetic insulins, if you would, that made a huge difference, I think, for diabetic management and also just the safety of the process. Oh, absolutely. I just, that's so crazy to me. Especially for someone like myself, I don't eat beef or pork, and I can't imagine having to inject it into my body if to stay alive. <laughs> so let's talk about your current regimen. You you mentioned the fact that you're on an insulin pump now. You don't have to say which one if you don't want to. But yeah. I want to start with, why did you decide to switch to a pump? You know, I sort of followed the technology. I went to a diabetes, diabetic, what do you call it, convention, if you would, yeah. or it was a, a get-together down at Long Beach. Long Beach Stadium, uh, not stadium, uh, auditorium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had all different providers there offering diabetic supplies and services and motivational speakers. And in fact, one of the speakers was, uh, I believe, Jerry Matthews of Starve Leave It to Beaver. Oh. Uh, I believe he is a diabetic. And so I went to a few of the tables and I actually went with the Medtronic pump and I was interested. A coworker had gone on to a insulin pump. And uh, it was something that I thought would help me manage my diabetes better. And the idea that you maybe only had to inject once every three days or every four days, uh, as opposed to four times a day, was appealing. So I finally got around to it. I won't say I'm a, you know, a one of the early adapters, but it made sense to me. So I've been with Medtronic pumps for now 15 years since 2006. You know, I'm on my fourth pump. I just got the 780G about three weeks ago, and I'm sort of been breaking that one in. (laughs) And do you find, because I always feel like with technology, I'm so thankful for it. You know, I love my CGM, but it's always kind of like a learning curve. And I can't imagine with insulin pumps, and I watched my friends obviously deal with it. How how was the transition from the older Medtronic into the new one? Do you feel like it's an easier fit or more of a learning curve? I think if you've had previous pumps with CGM, which I did have, I think it's just there's more information available. They have this link. You can link it up to your phone. Mm-hmm. And so I can get real time. I can just look at the Medtronic app and I know I can see what my how much my how much insulin active insulin I have what my blood sugar is at the moment, at least, you know, based on a CGM. CGMs yeah. are pretty good, but we all know they can have a 5 to 10% differential from yeah. a finger stick, but at least they give you an idea of where you're at. And of course, with the alert functions, if you're going high or going low, you can get the alerts and take the appropriate uh, action to deal with that. Okay. So here's one of the things that I've learned, and especially as I've, I've now in my 40s, as I've got older, do you still, did you, okay, as a kid, did you feel your lows? Yes. And what was the feeling for you? Well, how did you know that you were going low? Um, I used to shake. It, it was, yeah, I could get the shakes. I sort of out of body, a little bit out of yeah. little, even a little weird out of body. It's hard to describe it, but I could tell. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, back in the day for years, I carried a roll of lifesavers in my pocket because that was sort of a quick and easy way yeah. to uh, treat a low. Yeah. Uh, Highs you didn't know. Highs you didn't know about because you weren't. There was no CGM. There yeah. was no A1C. There was no finger uh, uh, yeah. finger sticking glucose uh, meters. Uh, you just kind of had to deal with it. But <laughs> I, I still carry. I still carry a couple of lifesavers. I, I now it's a single, you know, single yeah. wrap product. But again, they're quick. They're easy. Uh, if I feel a low coming and, or I, I can tell a low's coming, pop one in my mouth, take a break, and hopefully that'll get me back to, back to, and within range. 
or at least alert me to go get, get some juice or something if I need more. Okay. So here's a question. So insulin pump for 15 years, you, you're retired. How long have you been retired? Let's see. 13 years. Okay. So I don't know if this is, well, did you wear your pump to where everyone could see it? I wore it on my belt. Okay. Uh, so I, I wasn't hiding it, but I wasn't, you know, I've seen people wear it on their pocket. Like, like yeah. why are you doing that? But okay. I wore it on my belt. Some, uh, many people were going to see, you know, you're still wearing a pager, you know, <laughs> wear pagers. And I still, I actually still have gotten comments on that recently about you're wearing a pager. No, I'm wearing an insulin pump. Again, I think it's, I know some people, they don't want to be identified as a diabetic. Maybe they just don't want to be identified as different than others, particularly yeah. teenagers and youth. And I understand that. I certainly didn't go bragging when I was a kid. Oh, I'm a diabetic. Wow. Lucky me. I think that diabetes, I don't think should define us. I, yes, I am a type one diabetic. I'm not going to deny that. And I take the appropriate measures to deal with that. But, you know, I wasn't a diabetic attorney. I'm not a diabetic retiree. I was an attorney who had diabetes. You get people in every uh, profession, every way of life who are diabetics. They're not defined by their diabetes. They're defined by what they're doing in their regular career, whether it's as a student, whether it's a gymnast, whether it's a firefighter, they are dealing with it. Uh, they have to deal with their diabetes, but first and foremost, they are whatever they're doing. And that's yeah. how they, I think they should look at it. To me, diabetes put us on a defensive. We got mm -hmm. a bad, bad deck of cards and we, got, we draw the wrong card. But you know what? You have to deal with it. So you got put on a defensive. What do you do when you're on the defensive? You go on the offensive. And that's yeah. what I think all the treatment options that are available today, finger sticking. Like I said, when I was growing up, you went to the doctor every three months or the hospital lab. They didn't have Quest and all those other labs. Now you had to go to the hospital to get it drawn blood. They did it once every three months. And you get a blood sugar. And usually since it was a fasting blood sugar, usually it was in the 70s or 80s. And they said, okay, good job. Right. In three months. But you had no idea what was going on. So, you know, with the A1C, then with the, the finger sticks, uh, the glucose meters, the insulin pumps of all different manufacturers, all these products have made it easier to manage your diabetes. And if it's available to you, take advantage of it and use it because if you can manage your diabetes safely and efficiently, you're going to avoid the, hopefully you will avoid the consequences of long-term diabetic care. And, you yeah. know, we can talk about some of those later, but, you know, knock on wood, I've been able to avoid, I think, many of the most concerning, you know, my yeah. eyesight is still good. Yeah. And I got to say, and just because I just had a ton of blood work done last week and just like anybody living with diabetes knows you have to have at least once a year X, Y, and Z tests. And I had a moment, and I'm saying this for someone who's lived with this for such a long period of time, is when you say going to the hospital, I knew that I would, when we went to children's hospital every three or four months, we were going to walk down the aisle and we had to follow one color of the pathway. It was orange. And I knew that I was going to get labs done. So the fear of having blood taken was, has always been such a big deal. But my mom knew that it was such a big deal that we usually went shopping afterwards. So my shoe addiction <laughs> uh, was born through having to have blood work done. So I always give myself a little bit of gift and when you have the, the work done. And I even said today, because I got my results in and I'm very happy with everything. And my mom asked about it. And I was like, it's really none of your business, number one. Number two, you know, and she was like, I don't understand why you're so defensive about it. And I was like, I've been judged by a number my whole life. And, you know, when you ask, how did it go? You know, I, it's just, it was a, it was a poor decision on my part to talk to her like that, but it's one of those reminders about, 
always, you know, my friends that don't ever get blood work done unless they're sick or there's a problem. And so it was just a reminder this week about, yeah, we're just a little bit different and the offensive, you got to step up, you got to do whatever it takes to hopefully avoid the complications. And so you had a very successful career as an attorney. And so I'm saying that because even the college years are difficult, diabetes or not. So do you feel like you had any difficulties? And I don't like that. Or triumphed over things at any point in your professional career because of your diabetes management. Now, I feel like I have a pretty disciplined personality because of my diabetes, which has helped in other areas of my life. So anything that comes to mind with that type of weird question? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, well, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, if you manage your diabetes correctly, you, you do have to be disciplined. And I think that discipline does carry over into your other facets of your life. You know, as an attorney, I was, I was busy. You know, I worked for the same company for 26 years. And for the last 10, 12 years, I was doing international finance and heading up a team of attorneys across the world, literally. So, you know, it was long hours. I'd be on calls. I was based on the East Coast at the time. I'd be calls uh, with Europe, you know, five hours ahead of us at six yeah. in the morning. And then uh, the calls from Australia and China would come in at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. So it was a lot of long hours. But other than not getting enough sleep, but I think that's indicative of big people in many careers. I don't think the diabetes affected what I did. That whatever traveling I had to do, I was able to manage my diabetes well. Again, I think the things like the insulin pump just made that a lot easier in terms of recalibrating it to local time when you get there. I think that, again, I was just very aware of my diabetes. And, you know, in those days, I would be looking at, you know, testing maybe eight or 10 times a day, particularly yeah. if you're traveling, because things can go up and yeah. down. You may, you're not on your normal, probably not on your normal diet. The hours may be different. Yeah. You know, if on a business trip to Argentina, you know, there the culture is you don't eat dinner. And you, nine o'clock right. is early yeah. for dinner. You're eating dinner at 10 or 11. So that was an adjustment because I wasn't going to say, no, I can't eat or I, I'm not going to eat or I'm going to yeah. go eat at the hotel room while everyone else goes out. No, you got to be part of the group. So you make the adjustments necessary. Yeah. And we're going to talk about you've got an upcoming big trip, but um, and we're definitely going to touch on that here in a little bit. Okay. But I want to talk about you for, you know, I've uh, looked at a couple of, gosh, what are the words? Complications in the square in the face. And I'm thankful to say that I don't have any long term complications. I've had a retinopathy scare twice and worked through blood pressure medication, meditation, and just knowing that I was in a too stressful of a situation. So there were a lot of factors there. And so I know you've had a couple of things and I think I bring, I'm bringing this up because we had talked about frozen shoulder whenever we connected a few weeks ago. And so do you want to share any complications that you've had? And I say that because I want to talk about possible complications and then some of the other resources that we both found that have, once you come across these things, you know, what action do you take? In order to see it get worse. Yeah, I mean, I was a active tennis player for a long time. I mean, not particularly good, but I enjoyed playing. <laughs> and uh, at some point, it got to the point where when I was going to work, I couldn't even uh, lift my elbow, or my hand, shoulder up high enough to put the slot to get into the garage, the card into yeah. the slot to the garage. And so I, it was diagnosed as frozen shoulder. I then got it in the other side, and uh, it turned out that frozen shoulder is a complication in diabetes for some reason. I had arthroscopic uh, surgery on both shoulders what, almost 30 years ago, but that ruined my tennis career because uh, <laughs> I just couldn't, couldn't serve anymore. But again, I had the surgery. I've got probably 95% of 
rotation back and all that. Right. It's just 5% I didn't get back in my right shoulder prevents me from serving uh, uh, a tennis ball. Um, didn't you switch? Did you, you try, you went from tennis then to golf, right? But then I, I tried, I tried golf again. I'm not particularly, I enjoyed playing. It's not <laughs> nothing worse, nothing better than going out on the golf course for four hours and, uh, you know, and walking around and swinging at it. And occasionally you get lucky and the ball goes where you want it to go. <laughs> but I think I enjoyed golf and I played that for a number of years. And then when we moved back to San Francisco, I just sort of dropped golf because, uh, for different reasons. Right. But, and then uh, the other thing, you know, the major thing in the my, the na- major negative di- effect from diabetes uh, was some foot surgery I had. I was uh, di- I had a real problem with my left foot. One person said I had gout. Okay, gout. Okay. The next person said, "Let's take a look at this." It wasn't gout. I think it was just a wrong diagnosis by that podiatrist. But New Year's Eve, two thousand eleven or twelve, my foot sw- was swollen. It was huge. Doctors then, then by doctors said, go to the, uh, go to the, I want you to go to the emergency room and check it out. Well, it was a major thing. I apparently had Charcot's foot. Mm-hmm. The bones had started to dissolve and collapsing. My foot was three times normal. I spent New Year's Eve in the hospital. The next day, New Year's Day, the hospital was, the surgical wards were closed, but there were three emergency surgeries. I was one of them. They drained a lot of fluid out of my, uh, put a four inch scar in my, uh, left foot heel, uh, heel to mid toe or so, drained it out. They left it. They didn't sew it up. They couldn't sew it up. It was still too swollen. So they left it open. Uh, and then five days later, they went back up and were able to sew it together. It's healed well, but you know, it was misdiagnosed initially. But once I got the right treatment, it was terrific. Three years ago, my new podiatrist up here in uh, the Eldorado Hills area brought me in a company called Siren Socks. And he says, I think this company might be something you would be uh, interested in. This company produces special socks that have six temperature implants in them. Yeah. Uh, and they measure the temperatures in the right and left foot in uh, the corresponding areas. It's been shown that they can alert you to problems with your feet because if you're having a, if you have a, a, a potential foot ulcer, yeah. or a cutter shape that you're not aware of, the temperature in your foot where you have that will be higher than the corresponding other foot. Because of the so inflammation, the, right? Like the inflammation yeah, the in your body's fighting an infection or something. Yeah. And it, and and again, I checked my feet and uh, you may not notice it, but they notice it first. Yeah. Um, so earlier this year, starting February and March, I was getting a lot of red alerts saying, hey, there's a big different temperature differential between your left foot and your right foot. The differential was in my right foot, which was a non-Sharcot foot. Hmm. And so I talked to my podiatrist. I talked to the Siren Socks folks. They had not seen this. They said, you know, let's, you're looking at your feet. As I looked at my feet, I had my wife look at my foot to make sure there was nothing I didn't see or feel. There was nothing there, but I was getting, again, I had, you know, 20 days of red alerts, uh, which is unusual. So the early diagnosis from the Siren Socks told my podiatrist, hey, Get off your feet. Rest as much as you can. I, I know you have to do some stuff, yeah. but you know, don't don't garden as much or or <laughs> just cut back. So I sat there, rested, read books, watched some TV, and it cleared up on its own. But I'm convinced that without the sock warnings, uh, I might have I would not have known because there was no external evidence that anything was wrong. And who knows where it would have gone? You know, and I think I wanted- that's one of the things I say with tools. I mean, all the tools and, you know, I use a number of tools every single day to manage my diabetes. 
And whether that's compression socks or the siren socks, which are giving you alerts, the CGM, you know, it's a matter of A, finding the tools. Thankfully, your podiatrist or your GP knew about the tool. That's one of our jobs as people living with diabetes to say to our medical community, I need this. I want this. I'm interested in this. And to be honest too with, hey, I'm something's not right here. And because you don't see it doesn't mean that that, that it's not there. So I'm telling the people out there with diabetes as a patient advocate, you need to be able to start guiding that conversation. And, and siren socks is awesome. And that's, I, I've never worn them, but I've heard great things. And I'm very happy that you're able to share that because would you say that it was a totally preventative? I mean, you. Absolutely. I, yeah. you know, again, I think that it, they were not just, there's something brand new. They came out three, four years ago. There wasn't something like before that they built on. They came out with a new product that addresses a specific concern. Okay. I think, you know, the, the podiatrists out there, if they listen to this, they should check it out to see if it's something that they should advocate for their patients. Uh, again, it's a pair of socks. It's not difficult to wear. They come in black and they come in white. You know, if you're not a sock person, then that might be an issue. But right. again, you get early warnings. And yeah. again, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to prevent a get early warning about a foot also so you can deal with it before it becomes a major issue and you're in the hospital for it. Yeah. Well, and the good thing is you listen to your physicians and you got off your feet. You took some time to rest, which is hard for a lot of us, especially as an active person like yourself. So if, if I remember correctly, you are a master gardener. Yes, I'm a master gardener here in El Dorado County. Uh, and I'm, you know, we have a, a relatively small vegetable garden, but a lot of raised beds. And we're right now we're actively growing. Uh, oh, let's see what's out there. Squash, peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers. Asparagus season is done. Uh, let's see. Artichoke season is done. But, you know, and then we'll get the winter crops in, in September, October. We're putting out lettuce and uh, kale and stuff like that. Well, and I, so this is, you're the second uh, person I've interviewed since addressing two questions. And I feel like you kind of addressed them without me asking them is that you worked for a particular company for 26 years. So I'm willing to bet you had good insurance. So access to devices, insulin, and things like that. Would you say that that you had access to things easily? I would say yes. Yes, absolutely. Like you said, it was a, a good company with a good health program. And, uh, you know, things were available through medical insurance provided. Well, and good on you. That's nothing to be ashamed of. And I, I you know, I, some people are, I'm not going to get into that because that'll be a rabbit hole. But I think one of the other things, the other question I would ask is, do you have access to healthy foods in your area? Well, you do because you're, you're growing them. So that's it. <laughs> in addition to that, you're living in a part of the country that probably has so the closest grocery store is probably not far, and I'm willing to bet it has a lot of fresh things. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, and there's you know there's several local farmers markets. You know Wednesdays, yep. Saturdays, or Sundays. So if you're not growing something, you know you can go to those, and they have a much greater variety of anything that we could possibly grow. <laughs> well, I think that, I'm saying this out loud too because I love to garden, and I have friends that do tomatoes. I've got other friends that do peppers, so we kind of all share with that. I'm saying to the listeners, if you do not have access to fresh vegetables, I'll gladly send you some seeds. Maybe you can learn how to garden a little bit. That's a great life. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah and also check out a community garden because a lot of communities, yeah. if you don't, you know, if you're living in an apartment building and you don't really have a garden, uh, check out to see if your city or the park department has a community yeah. garden where you can get a four by four or four by eight space and you can yeah. plant your own things and you'll be with a community of fellow gardeners who can certainly advise you of what works here in our in your, your neighborhood or in your weather area 
and what doesn't work. So, you know, it's not that hard really to grow a tomato. I know. And it's, I don't know if it's the summer weather. Or it's been weird here in Oklahoma. It's been really rainy now. It's sunny, not too hot. We have more tomatoes. It's like, it's, it's crazy. I'm very thankful for that. And you can't, you can't beat a fresh tomato. And so I'm glad that we talked about all that because I'm going to put this in the show notes. I'm going to look for some community gardens or some resources, excuse me. If you're interested in starting a community garden or how to find a community garden, I will see what, what I can find and put in there so you can get involved because gardening, I don't care who you are. If you put your hands in the dirt, whether that's with flowers or tomatoes, would you say that, I mean, it's therapeutic for me at times. You get to see something oh. grow, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it takes a while, obviously, but you start with a little plant like this and suddenly it's, uh, you know, those tomato plants can go four or five feet high and four or five feet wide. And yeah, and then you're sort of digging through the leaves and finding that, you know, ripe red treasure. Uh, Or we have some of the uh, yellow gold uh, cherry tomatoes, which are bright yellow, but they're they're wonderful. You mix them in with some red cherry tomatoes, you have a beautiful looking salad. That sounds delicious. Well, okay, so I want to kind of wrap things up with the fact that you are an active person. And even though you force yourself every once in a while to take it down a notch and relax your legs, you are training, I say that loosely, for an upcoming trip to Egypt. Let's talk yeah. about that. That's not until next year, right? Uh, February of 2022. And you booked this trip during the pandemic, just knowing that everything would hopefully come back to normal and you'd be ready to go. <laughs> we booked it about three months ago through... Uh, alumni association travel. And yeah, the hope was that we're, we're anxious to get out again. Like I think everyone is, you know, we were all, we were all sort of in our houses or apartments, not going out a lot. Luckily we had the garden to get into so that, you know, it was easier for us, but we've always enjoyed traveling. You know, now that we're retired, we can take some maybe longer trips we could have otherwise. So yeah, we uh, booked this trip to uh, Egypt. It's 15 days. There's, I think, three or four days in Cairo. Nice. Then we're going to be sailing up to Nile River for three days and then floating on Lake Nasser uh, for three days and then ending up in Luxor. So hey. uh, we're going to have, you know, look, you start learning Egypt, Egyptian history about reading about Egypt, you know, in grade school. Right. And it's a fascinating historical history culture. It's a beautiful country. It's got, you know, temples and pyramids, all those type of things. And, you know, it's something that we've never thought we would actually do for a long trip, but this seemed exciting to go with the alum, al- uh, alumni group. Pretty much, you know, you just sign up and they take care of all the reservations so you don't have to make your own. That's nice. Uh, and uh, it should be an exciting trip as a diabetic, you know, anytime. You're, you're, you know, huge time difference. So you're going to have to make adjustments for that. Local food, or again, you're, you're outside yeah. your probably comfort level of what you normally eat. Which is fine. You should be challenged. You should try different things. I, yeah. I, I want to try local cuisine when I'm there because I'm not going to get it as good, uh, even yeah. at the best Egyptian restaurant in town. If there is one. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, there is uh, some walking, obviously. You know, they said, I think one is a two or three mile hike. Well, that's okay. But again, it's on cobbled streets or rough yeah. things. So, you know, I have my walking stick and I'll be wearing the right shoes and uh, hopefully I uh, won't fall down. <laughs> you're not going to fall down, but you'll have your socks with you, right? You'll keep oh, I'll have my sock. <laughs> so you'll keep an eye on all that while you're out and about. And I'm, I'm so fascinated by that. And you are a very seasoned traveler internationally. So do you have any tips or tricks or anything that you do in particular to, I'm going to say better manage or to travel with diabetes? I always double up on what I think I'll need. So yeah. 
if it's insulin or materials, you know, for the test strips and all that, I pack a complete two or three week load yeah. into the checked on luggage, but I have another set I'm carrying on. It's, uh, you know, I'm very careful to make sure I don't lose that. So yeah. I double up on everything just in case the luggage gets misplaced or whatever. The insulin I always keep close because, you know, who knows what temperatures are in the yeah. hold of a, you know, so that I keep on with me at, at all times. But other than that, you know, make sure you have enough supplies and double what you think you might need because, you know, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want to be scrambling for test strips or insulin yeah. in a foreign country, which may or may not have those supplies available. Well, I think that's another thing is that I'm going to say, unfortunately, and I don't like it's not a Debbie Downer comment, but as somebody who lives with the disease, if you're going to be traveling to that extent, do a little bit more research and know where the local hospital is or if there's an emergency situation. And I'm willing to bet, and don't quote me on this, that the American Diabetes Association or maybe even JDRF International might have some resources. So if you're in a particular country and something goes crazy you will still have access or what you need to um, enjoy your trip, no matter what the circumstances. Yeah, you can, you can download download stuff like that. You can certainly download, okay, you're in Cairo, okay, English-speaking endocrinologist in case yeah. you have to make an emergency call. That might work. You know, I a few years ago, there's this show called The Amazing Race. Yeah. And that year's winner was a young black woman, type 1 diabetic. Uh, oh. But you never knew when she was competing that she was a diabetic. Right. Uh, I mean, I read about it later and I'm going, okay, we're not regular watch the show, but they do, they travel the world, I think in two weeks to go, you know, a right. race, anything race, just a race. They go to, you know, all over the world to South America, then to Europe, then to Egypt, then to Japan. They do crazy stunts. Uh, they right. have an eating, eating contest. She managed her diabetes well enough to win this crazy, uh, amazing race thing. I don't know her name. I found out, I read later that she was a diabetic and I'm going, hey, wow, that's a person who's really on top of her stuff. She's managing her diabetes and she's competing in a very stressful situation yeah. with quick time frames and she did it and she won. So I think I'm going to look it up. I'm going to, I guess that'd be something I'd love to interview because I, I think, she, you know, she was on, obviously she's on TV. She was a terrific speaker. I think she would be a great person to have on your podcast because uh, I think her stories would really resonate, particularly with younger people right. uh, who are wondering, maybe newer diabetes, what can they do in their lives? Well, the things you can do anything you want to do. Don't let the di your diabetes limit you to what you can do because there's no limitations on what you can do. Yeah. And that was the last question that I was going to ask you is if you had any advice for someone newly diagnosed at whatever age or for somebody who's younger or that parent that needs to hear you know, would you say that you've lived life to the fullest? And I mean, and that's, a, that's a, has diabetes kept you from doing anything in life? No, it hasn't. No, I have, I lived life to the fullest. No, because I hope to go another 15 years. So let's see uh, <laughs> what happens in the next 15 years, but no, don't let diabetes limit you. Look, if you're a parent and if you're a parent of any age, you're still worrying about your diabetic son or daughter, like your mom is, but give them the freedom uh, at the appropriate times in their lives to do what they need to do. Sometimes you learn from your mistakes. So if they forget to bolus or something like that and get a high, you're going to learn from that mistake. It's not, hopefully it will not be life threatening. Yeah. Uh, but let, they have to live their life to the fullest, to their to the extent that they can. It is not a death sentence. It is just something that you have to live with and 
quite frankly, with all the management tools that are available today from, you know, CGM, glucose meters, insulin pumps, siren socks, there are so many tools there to better manage your diabetes. Take advantage of those tools. Listen to the professionals that you're dealing with, your endocrinologist, your podiatrist, your doctor. See what they say. They are up front. Find out if there's some test things or programs, you know, you can go Mm -hmm. on. 35 years ago, there was a nationwide study for retinopathy mm-hmm. and whether or not, and I signed up for it. I was one of, I don't know, thousands of people and I think 200 hospitals across the country that participated. And uh, you, it was a question was whether or not early treatment of diabetes, diabetes, that diabetic retinopathy was a good thing or not with the laser treatments. Yeah. It turns out uh, three years into the program of a five or six year study, they realized absolutely it was. Yeah. So I remember going in there. You took a placebo. You didn't know if you were taking an aspirin or you were taking a placebo. I swore I was taking the aspirin. Of course, I was taking at the end of the term. They said, no, you took the placebo the whole time. <laughs> but I did get early uh, treatment for diabetes retinopathy. And that day, the lasers, they were bright. They, you know, like yeah. getting lightning bolts into your uh, head. But it took care of some issues. And it's helpfully kept me having fairly decent, good eyesight. Not 2020 anymore, but that's just a sign of old age uh, <laughs> as opposed to anything related to diabetes. But so, yes, get your kids active, get to younger people. Don't let diabetes limit you. Uh, go on the off- offensive, get the tools you can. And there are all sorts of programs. If, you know, if your insurance doesn't cover it, check out because a lot of the insulin suppliers, the drug companies, the, they have special programs that will help finance the tools necessary yeah. for everyone. Well, and I don't be sure that. Take advantage of it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always trying to put the word out there about assistance programs or, you know, whatever resources I can find to help make sure that everyone has the resources that they need and the information they need to have the best diabetes management. So, well, Tim, thank you so much for taking time to chat. I can't wait to keep in touch with you to find out how the Egypt trip goes. We're going to have to put pictures in there once you get out and good luck with the the heat bubble and uh, with your garden. Hopefully it won't take out your garden. You know, I'll be out there early, giving it a little extra water just earlier in the day. It's hopefully it'll survive. But yeah, we, you know, when it gets this hot, you never know what's going to happen. A, a plant that looks really good in the morning. Yeah. Uh, go back at five in the afternoon and it's like gone. <laughs> anyway, but, hey, Amber, thank you so much for inviting me uh, yeah. to join the podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you and anything I said that could help someone, you know, think positive. I mean, Diabetes, it's something we just have to live with. There's a lot worse things you can have. So you can manage it. It, It's a lot better than it was 55 years ago. Let me tell you that. And I suspect, you know, the improvements that keep coming out are absolutely amazing. I don't know. Maybe we will actually get to an artificial pancreas. I hope so. And if they do and they want a, you know, a a 70 year old geezer to be a a test lab rat, lab rat, I'll, I'll sign up for that. I love it. You'll dedicate your science, uh, your body to science to make sure that the rest of us are all, I'm as old, well, yeah, you know what I'm saying. All I right. know what you're saying. <laughs> I feel the same well, way. I'll always put through my, through my body in that to help. You know, game. you're, apparently you get rewarded for lab tests. Take care. You got shoes. I got baseball cards. There you uh, go. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> you know, uh, get some baseball cards. I was always a reward. Now, the only problem is, those baseball cards disappeared years ago, and oh. those were the those were back in the '60s. And then you had some great, great More baseball cards. cards. Now probably worth worth a lot of money, <laughs> but you know I'm sure my mom at some point in time said, "Oh, 
they're gone. Of those. <laughs> I wish I had them, and you know, but what the heck? But it's nice getting a little reward to go through that uh, lab yeah. work. Yeah. Well, have a great summer, and I will definitely stay in contact. Thank you so much, Tim. We will do that. Thank you. Anna. All right. Bye. Bye bye. There's no doubt Tim is enjoying retired life. Has his green thumb in the dirt and growing veggies while preparing well in advance for his dream vacation to Egypt. I can't wait to hear about that adventure. Good on you, Tim, for living life to the fullest, no matter what decade with this disease. Before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, this episode was brought to you by Real Good Foods, who have a ton of delicious and healthy options that can be found in grocery stores across the country. You can also have everything delivered to your door, which is kind of what I'm into, by ordering on my affiliate page at diabetesdailygrind.com. Number two, I know you're listening, and thank you. So be kind and throw a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. You can make a one-time or monthly donation by clicking the donate link in the show notes. And finally, I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me on any social media platform or directly at Amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love are the reason I keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. It's a daily grind, it's a daily grind, it's a daily grind. And-